2 Samuel uh, 19, please. 2 Samuel 19. We have a rather lengthy passage to look at together tonight, but let's look at it first by reading these 43 verses, and uh, then we'll do our best to uh, summarize what is taking place here. 2 Samuel chapter 19. It was back on December the 4th where we left off in chapter 18, uh, so we return together tonight to our study. 2 Samuel 19, verse 1, it was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day that the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people still in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth even until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army. From now on, in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan. Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shammai, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite from Behurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and with his 15 sons and his 20 servants. He rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gerar, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem 
Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Now Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him this oath. Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day that the king departed until the day that he came back into safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Vephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant, deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He, however, has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. But my lord, the king, is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at the table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite had come down from Rogelim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzilla was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still even listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him, all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel brought the king on this way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. And in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer, more convincing 
than the words of the men of Israel. Well, you can easily divide the life of David into three parts. Part number one would be his trials when, he, when in his early years he was hounded by his father-in-law, Saul. Part two would be his triumphs when he united God's people and subdued Israel's enemies as God's chosen king. But the third part of his life would be what we would call his troubles when after his own sin he endured one trouble after another, not only within his family, but also within his kingdom. The most recent of his experiences with trouble was on account of his son Absalom, who usurped his father's throne and led a rebellion against David's kingdom. This rebellion where the majority of Israel joined in allegiance to Absalom, it forced David to flee from Jerusalem with a small group of loyal followers. As we studied it together, beginning back in chapter 16, we discovered that it was a sad and difficult scene to see. And it even left us wondering, no doubt, even in the minds of the people then, would God keep his covenant with David now that it is extremely hard to see how that plan is going to be fulfilled, especially now that King David is being pushed off the throne and placed out of the capital city. We've learned over the last several chapters, however, that even with this tragic scene in David's life, that the only plan that ever really matters is God's plan. Regardless of what Absalom was doing, regardless of how Ahithophel was counseling, or even why and where David was running, the only plan that really matters is God's plan. Proverbs 19.21 reminds us that many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will ultimately stand. In other words, God will bring to fruition all of his ordained purposes, regardless of how dark and difficult the circumstances are around us. And it was indeed a dark and difficult moment in David's life. And as we continue to study, we see a civil war breaking out in Israel with a majority going out to kill David, not to save David. David, however, due to the providence of God, has just enough time to organize his army, and he does so under the command of Joab, and he gives them one directive, and that one directive is this, please deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. That's not what happened, was it? Absalom was killed in the battle. And let me remind you, he was intentionally killed by his chief commander, Joab. And not only was his son killed, but the armies of Israel, we learned, that were loyal to him were overwhelmingly defeated. David and his men had won the battle, and they had won it overwhelmingly with the half of the amount of soldiers that Absalom had on his side. It was quite a scene. But when we get to chapter 19, we find out that now all that is happening in front of us is about the king returning. He had been forced away, but now he's returning. King David 
is returning to Jerusalem. And the big thing I want you to keep in mind as we look at this chapter together is this one word. It's the word contrast. Contrast. The story that has enveloped the life of David has been a parallel to the perfect king, Jesus Christ. Much of the time we've seen through our study how David points us forward to Jesus. But there are some scenes in David's life, especially his troubles, that we are given a contrast. A contrast between King David and King Jesus. A contrast to the kingdom of God under David's reign and the kingdom of God under Jesus' reign. In other words, sometimes in First and Second Samuel, David looks a lot like Jesus when he steps in on the battlefield to defeat Goliath, who is death. He is our Jesus who comes to defeat death on our behalf. Sometimes David looks just like Jesus. Then sometimes he doesn't look like Jesus at all. His sin against Uriah with Bathsheba as one example. And now in chapter 19, we see another one of those scenes. We are pointed to Jesus by the image, follow this, of God's king returning, all right? You uh, Lord of the Rings fan, all right? The return of the king, if you will. So, so we see that image because we know that one day our King Jesus is returning just as we see King David returning. Jesus will return to this earth. By the way, Jesus made that promise. He said to his disciples in John 14, 3, I will come again. And he gave his disciples a foretaste of how that promise would ultimately be fulfilled. Because when you study it, after his death and resurrection, he did return to them in their very presence. They saw him. They touched him. They spoke with him. But that was only a partial fulfillment. The main emphasis of Jesus' message when he said, I will come again, was after his ascension, he said, there is coming a day when the king will return. And we know from our study of scriptures that according to the Bible, that day when the king returns will be beyond anything we really could ever comprehend. Every knee is going to bow when the king returns. Every knee is going to confess that he is the Lord. He is the king when the king returns. All imperfections in your life and in this earth will be made perfect. He's going to unite the earth. He's going to reign in eternal victory. It is going to be a return like no other. But again, 2 Samuel 19 is also about the king's return, the return of King David. And it is a contrast, a contrast to the return of King Jesus. Because the return of King David was a disappointment. It's kind of like in my childhood when Michael Jordan had the first retirement. He came back. It was awesome. Then he decided to stop a little bit more. And then he came back with the Wizards, and it was terrible. It was a great disappointment. It's, it's kind of what's happening now. 
Everything doesn't work out so perfectly for David. And as he returns to Jerusalem, the kingdom will never be the same as it was in the beginning when God gave him the throne. But, but, here's the contrast, the return of King Jesus will not disappoint. For when he returns, everything will be perfect. It will all be as he created it to be. Now, this is a long chapter. So I can only give you the summary, and we're, we're going to go after 8 tonight. I'm just going to have to tell you that right now. So let me do my best to just give you the summary, and then I'll leave it to you to dive deeper, and I hope you will. Number one, we see the king grieving. That's verses 1 through 8, the king grieving. This, this, this ties into where we left him in chapter 18. Look at verse 1 of 19. The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. We see these exact words of the first point that I've written here before you in verse 2. The king is grieving. The king is grieving for his son. Now, again, we spent some time on this in chapter 18. The kingdom was now safe. Uh, David and his men, under the command of Joab, have defeated Absalom and his army. The kingdom is now safe, but the king was overwhelmingly sad. And all he can do is grief. All he can do is moan and cry. It didn't matter what Absalom had done. I mean, this was his flesh and blood. He deeply loved him. And now... He is deeply grieved in losing him. Now, the grief, no doubt, stems from the actual loss of his son, but also in the fact that I believe David knew that his sin was largely responsible for how this relationship ended. Then add on top of that the nature of how he died. His chief commander, Joab, killed Absalom, his son, when David gave him specific instruction to deal gently with him. And the last thing we see David saying in chapter 18 was, in the very last verse, would I had died instead of you? But this was another remarkable contrast to David as king and Jesus as king because David couldn't die in Absalom's place. Even though he wanted to, he could not die in Absalom's place. But what King David couldn't do, thanks be to God, King Jesus did. He died in the place of sinners. But David's grieving had affected his loyal people. His men had experienced victory, but they didn't feel like it. It's like the old saying, if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. All right, The king's unhappy, everybody else is unhappy. i got to be careful saying that stuff like that now, don't I? I could get by with that prior to this week, but now my mom is sitting on the second row. I wasn't talking about you, mom. But that's kind of what's going on. They don't, they don't know how to respond because David's not responding normal. In fact, they begin to feel as if their victory for King David was actually the reason why King David is grieving. He's inconsolable, paralyzed by emotion, completely disengaged from every relationship and responsibility that he had. Now, let's just, on a very human standpoint, we feel for David, don't we? Because what he's experiencing in this moment is a collision between love and justice. It's a collision between private grief and public duty or responsibility. His heart is breaking, but life is still moving forward. And as king, as a leader, there are other people who need him right now. And any of you who have experienced deep grief, you you know that in those moments, you just wish everything could just stop. 
And perhaps that's what David is feeling. I wish everything could just stop so I can deal with this, but everything is not stopping. He's the king. People need him. And so Joab intervenes. He confronts David. In fact, he confronts David harshly. He doesn't mince his words. He straight up tells him that his withdrawal has made people feel ashamed to even serve him. But I think a lot of what Joab is saying in these first eight verses is an exaggeration. He's exaggerating to David to prove his point. He's saying to him, look, you would rather love the people who hate you, Absalom, and hate the people who love you, we who fought for you. This is, this is what you're saying, that you would rather have Absalom alive and us dead. Now, let's be honest. This is unfair. It's unfair. It's extreme. It, it, it didn't speak to the reality But it did speak to the fact that David had ignored his loyal servants on account of the overwhelming nature of his grief. And perhaps maybe the way that Joab is describing it is exactly how the people felt. Well, well maybe he likes his rebellious son who came after his head more than he likes us. And so Joab told him what he had to do. He said, look, you need to go out there and speak to the hearts of your people. They need to see you. If they don't see you and hear from you, they're going to desert you. You know, to David's credit, he listened to Joab. He did what he can do. He didn't do everything that Joab said. Joab said, go speak to the hearts of the people. But we don't see him speaking. We do see him making an appearance, though. Look look at verse 8. He arose and took his seat in the gate, the place where the king would, would sit to judge the issues of the people. He arose and took his seat in the gate. The people were all told, behold, the king, king's sitting in the day. We hadn't seen him for days. He's been mourning, grieving, but, but he's here. We can see him. And all the people came before the king. Now, again, there's, there's no record that David said anything. But it kind of seems to be all that the people needed was just, just to see their king again. He was no longer withdrawn from them, hidden from them. But I don't believe necessarily that the picture here is a celebratory scene by the people for their king, you know? That that, that, that when the king comes out or the queen comes out and the the people see him, we're, 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 we're clapping, we're applauding, we're cheering, woo! I don't think there's anything like that going on at all. In fact, it most likely was a was a silent, awkward, sad scene. He's silent. They're wondering if he's pleased with them, but at least they see him again. It it does bring me to think about this, and I'll move on. You know, when we see King Jesus, it will be a different experience for his people. There will be no shame, no sadness, no disappointment. He will not be silent, and we will rejoice together in the victory that He has perfectly won for us. I don't have time to go here, but there are some things I think we can learn about grieving here, the importance of of how we don't need to isolate ourselves and how we need to value the people who love us and how we need to move forward and the gifts that God does give us, all of that. That's, That's not for us to discuss here. The contrast is the emphasis. The contrast is the The people are disappointed in how their king is responding. But friends, we will not be disappointed when the king returns. So we see the king grieving. Secondly, we see the people arguing. The people arguing. That's verses 8 through 15 as well as verses 40 through 43. And I'm trying to give you again, do my best to give you a summary tonight. We, We can't tear apart every phrase of every verse 
But what we have in verses 8 through 15 as well as verses 40 through 43, and I want you to look at it like this. What we have are bookends, okay? Bookends that show us the reality of the situation in Israel at this time. And the reality is this. The people are divided. The people of God are divided, and it's only going to get worse. Look at verse number 9, okay? And all the people were arguing through all the tribes of Israel. The question is, what are they arguing about? Well, in one sense, the northern tribes of Israel who had aligned themselves with Absalom now realize that they have made a major miscalculation. They have made a major, major, foolish, terrible mistake. The king they had rejected, uh, King David, was the king that defeated the one that they anointed, King Absalom. They knew by this whole outcome of battle, that David was the rightful king. But what's interesting here is we see an argument going on, but the narrator doesn't even give us what the other side was arguing about. He only gives us one side. And perhaps to him it wasn't even worth it to list in the Holy Scriptures. It only leads us to believe that there were still groups of people who wanted to revolt against David, although Absalom was dead. However, the majority of the northern tribe decided to bring David back as king. But the southern tribe was a different story. The southern tribe of Judah was not yet convinced. And that's important because that's the tribe that David was from. This is also the tribe that launched Absalom's revolt. This is the place of Hebron. So again, we've got some more arguing, some more division. So, so David seeks to bring the people together now that he's returning. And one of the things he does, oddly enough is make Amasa, who was Absalom's military commander, his new military commander, all right? Who have we seen as David's loyal military commander up to this point? Joab. But now, Joab is getting demoted. And of all people, Absalom's guy is taking his place. I'd be curious especially you political minds who turned in to watch McCarthy get voted down six times in a row today. And the only reason I know that, because I did too. But I would be interesting to know how many of you political guys would think about what David is doing here. Because in my opinion, I think this is nothing more than a political move. David intended to bring Judah and Israel back together in unity again. But, of course, there most likely was personal animosity here as well. It could have been that David demoted Joab and replaced him with Amasa as an expression of his frustration with Joab because he went against him and killed his son. Whatever it was, it worked. And verse 14 says, look at it, that he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one. But here's the question. Did it bring the entire nation together in unity under David's kingship? Not quite. Not quite. And that's where we go to the other book end, okay? Verse 40. Skip ahead real quickly, all right? This benefits our time. Let's skip ahead real quickly. Go to verse 40. Here's what we find out afterwards. Verse 40 says, all the people of Judah, now notice this, and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. So King David is returning to Jerusalem, but the kingdom is fractured. He's got all of Judah. He only has half of Israel. It's not united. It's fractured. 
It's divided. The kingdom is not like it used to be. It's far from perfect. In fact, verses 41 through 43, and we're not going to read them again, we see the chapter ending with more argument over David and their relationship to him. There's no longer peace. There's no longer beauty and glory. It's a mess. So it's clear that the king's return did not unite the people together. And when we get to chapter 20, we're going to see it, that it's far from that. So it begs the question, will there ever be a king in God's kingdom who can unite his people together under a perfect reign? And this leads me to the final thing that I want you to see tonight, which is the bulk of the chapter, but that is the king returning. The king returning, all right? We look at the king grieving, the people arguing. Thirdly, the king returning. This is verses 16 through 39, but it actually begins in verse 15 with the phrase, so the king came back. The king came back. It's speaking in past tense, right? The king came back. Do you know that one day we will speak in past tense? The king came back. The king came back. Oh, the king came back in verses 16 through 39. Describe the journey of that return and some, some interesting interactions along the way. In fact, there are three character interactions that the narrator highlights. And those are the three that I want to bring to your attention and we'll pray. First of all, we see this individual by the name of Shammai. Shammai, verses 16 through 23. Do you remember Shammai? Did it sound familiar to you at all? I know it's been a while since we've been there. But does Shammai ring a bell when we were reading it in the opening text? Well, let me remind you. This is the same guy when David was coming to the town of Behurim while fleeing Jerusalem. This is that crazy wild man running on the hillside along the caravan hurling insults at the king, kicking dust and slinging rocks, all right? Do you remember that guy now? That this is who Shammai is. He called David a worthless man, a murderer. He cursed at him, threw rocks, kicked dust, told him to get out of town. And he did that the whole way. In fact, Abiathar said, David, I'm just going to go over there and take his head off right now. It's not even lawful for someone to speak to the king this way. And what did David say? No, 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 leave him alone. It may be that... That God has sent him to do this very thing to me. Let, let, let him alone. Let, let him be. But he did. I mean, every, every moment, he just cursed and threw rocks until David and the group were out of sight. Well, guess what? He's back. He's back. And this time, it's a different thing. This time, he's not hurling insults. This time, he's begging for mercy. It's quite a different scene. He's fighting his way. I'm not going to read it again. But you see, he's fighting his way to the front of the crowd, stumbling down in front of David. And he's asking him, hey, you remember that thing I did to you not too long ago, all those things I said? Well, I hope, I hope you won't take that to heart. I really didn't mean it. I thought you were somebody else. That's, that's right. I thought you were an entirely different person. Don't, don't, please don't take that to heart. This is what he does. And interestingly enough, David tells him in verse 23, look at it, you shall not die. You shall not die. But you got to read ahead to see the end of the story. 
And I have no plans to go to 1 Kings when we get done with 2 Samuel. But if we did, we would go quickly to chapter 2 and verse 8, and we'd find out that David did put him to death. There was never any true reconciliation when the king returned. He didn't keep his word. That's Shammai, all right? Here's the next one. And I have to really say this slowly because Kate came home Sunday and said, I said something in the pulpit I shouldn't have. I tried to say Pierce. It didn't come out that way. Some of you probably know it. It even shocked me when I said it. So I'm going to slow this one down. Mephibosheth, all right? Mephibosheth. That's the next guy that we see. Verse 24 through 30. Now, Mephibosheth, we know him as Jonathan's son. Jonathan was David's best friend, but he had been a victim of Ziba's lies. Back in chapter 16, when David was fleeing Jerusalem, Ziba, who was Mephibosheth's servant, comes to David with all these foods and gifts and donkeys, and David asking, hey, well, why are you bringing this to me? Where's Mephibosheth? Well, that's when Ziba tells him that Mephibosheth had defected and given loyalty to Absalom. So what does David do? He's not in a position to investigate or try to figure it out. He just simply gives Ziba everything that he had once given to Mephibosheth. He said, look, if that's the case, if he's defective and given loyalty to Absalom, then you can have everything that I've given to him. But now David and Mephibosheth meet again. And it's immediately apparent in this conversation, as we read it at the beginning of the message, that Ziba's account back in chapter 16 was a complete and total lie. Mephibosheth comes out to meet the king. It's actually a funny scene. His disposition is is, as one who had been mourning. He has dirty clothes, a long beard, and curled toenails. That's what he looks like. He explains to David that Ziba tricked him, that David manipulated him. But what's surprising is that David, notice this, he decides to split between Ziba and Mephibosheth what was once all of Mephibosheth. So, so, So back up. A few months ago, he gave it all to Ziba. Instead of taking it all back and giving it back to his right belonger, restoring it to who it belonged, righteous judgment. He's like, oh, I'm just, I'm just tired of hearing it. You take half, you take half. In fact, it's almost as if David didn't believe his loyal friend and son of his best friend, Jonathan. Now, to me, I think it's obvious that Mephibosheth was completely honest. Notice what he said in verse 30. And this is an interesting characteristic even of our own relationship with King Jesus. Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, you let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. It's actually an interesting perspective on things, isn't it? He didn't need nor want anything else. Mephibosheth was perfectly content to know that his king had come back to reign. That's all he wanted. I'm happy. If you're going to do it that way, just give Ziba everything. I'm just glad that the king is back home. But what about David? David was once known for ruling with righteous judgment, but now that doesn't seem to be the case. With, like it was with Shammai, there was never any true reconciliation. And now with Mephibosheth, he was not fully restored what had been promised to him. He was not fully restored to the king. And then, then we have a third character. This is the last one. Barzillai. Barzillai. Verses 31 through 39. And what do we know about him? He was a wealthy man. An old man who had been loyal to David, previously helped him, 
He makes an appearance here to show his support as the king is returning back to Jerusalem. In fact, the king stops. David invites Barzillai to, to come to Jerusalem and he would take care of him and provide for him in this season of his life. I think it's genuine. He, he wanted to return the kindness to Barzilla that had been given to him when he was running from Jerusalem. But Barzillai makes it clear that he's just too old to travel. He knows death is intimate, in, 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 imminent for him. He, he says, I can't, I can't see anything anymore. I can't hear anything anymore. It's, it's going to be a burden for you to take me along. He'd much rather die in the comfort of his own home near the graves of his family than to do this whole journey to, to Jerusalem. But, but he did offer to David to take Chimham and let him enjoy the king's kindness on his behalf. We read in other passages of Scripture, my dad brought this to my attention over Christmas. Uh, we were walking through the Macadamo lights. He said, you know, Chimham went back to Bethlehem, and some historians tell us that Chimham was an innkeeper. I'll just throw it out there for you to consider. Well, David took Chimham. Now, it's obvious to me that King David, once again, was limited in his ability to reign as God's perfect king. Because think about this. David wasn't able to give life to the dying Brazilla. He wasn't able to produce in him what was necessary for him to be with the king. We might would say it like this since we're getting the picture now. King David wasn't able to resurrect Barzilla because David was an imperfect king. And here's the conclusion of the whole contrast that I think the narrator wants us to see as all of the Old Testament points us to Jesus. When King David returned, it was underwhelming. It was disappointing. But Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of King David. And what King David's return was not able to bring, King Jesus' return will fully accomplish. Let's retrace our steps. David could not unite the people. But when the perfect King Jesus returns, he will bring together all his people from every nation, from every tribe, for every tongue. And there will be peace and harmony under the reign of King Jesus. David didn't bring full reconciliation to Shammai. But when the perfect king returns, he will prove that his people have been eternally reconciled with him forever. He will not go back on his word. There's no probation for the child of God, only reconciliation. David did not rightly restore what belonged to Mephibosheth. But when the perfect king Jesus returns, he will restore everything that was robbed and broken by sin. David couldn't give or resurrect the life of Barzillai. But when the perfect king returns, he will show once and for all his power over life and death. In not only how he resurrected his own life, but in how he will resurrect all of his people. Under the care and provision of his eternal grace. So as we have said now. Almost 62 times in our journey through First and Second Samuel. Scripture 
is leading us not to see David. Not to see ourselves. But to see Jesus. Jesus is the greater David. He is the perfect king. And it is to him and his return that we hope for one day he will come again. And we look forward to the day when the king returns. Let's stand together for prayer tonight.